Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. This week, we have a special guest with us to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's nice to see everybody today. Hope you don't mind that I'm going to, I'm using my notes from the, my laptop. Um, it's just easier to see. <laughs> We're going to be looking at the story of David in Ziklag this morning. So that's in 1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 1, and down through uh, chapter 30. So we need to go ahead and read that first. So, and it's, it's, it's a lengthy story, but we have time. So 1 Samuel chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing by, passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. Now I need to give you a little background that at this point in his life, David has been running from Saul. So he's taken up with this king Achish with the, of the Philistines, acting like he's working for this king. So that's why David is hanging out with the Philistines. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. And so he passes by. David and his men were on in, in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said to King Achish, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to the battle, lest in battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David is ten, ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you've been an honest, honest and to me it seems right that you should march out and in we uh, and march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said he shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. So I'm going to push pause there, and we'll complete that story in a few minutes. I want to continue and give you the background here, but let me introduce this by telling you a story of something that happened in 2009. In 2009, in the summer of 2009, it was a very exciting time 
for me as a writer, for us as a family. I had just finished my first book, and Krista and I were taking a two-week trip for our 25th anniversary, and the last week was going to be spent at the largest air show in the world, which is called the Experimental Aviation Association's Air Venture, or most people just know it as Oshkosh. And that's where I was going to get to release my book, sell my book for the first time. And I was going to meet somebody who had learned the hard way how to walk with God through the battlefields of life. So I sat at a table set aside for authors of Christian books on mission aviation. And that's where I met a lady named Gracia Burnham. Do any of you remember Gracia Burnham? Remember her name? Gracia is a beautiful woman because her soul is like her name. She's pretty anyway, but her soul is like her name. She's very gracious and just full of grace in the way that she responds to everybody. If you knew her story, you might expect Gracia to be otherwise because Gracia and her husband Martin were kidnapped missionaries and that half of the world was praying for in 2001 and 2002. Martin had been a missionary aviator. And they endured an excruciating year of hunger and want and brutality with this uh, uh, Filipino Muslim radical group. And they were near, they had several near, de- uh, near misses with death before the final rescue attempt in which her husband Martin was killed. And so this is what Gracious said about how that affected her faith. Sometimes I wonder, why did Martin die when everyone was praying he wouldn't? Why does Scripture lead you to believe that if you pray a certain way, you'll get what you pray for? People all over the world were praying that we'd both get out alive, but we didn't. So Gracious Questions made her realize that it isn't always easy to comprehend this God that we think we know. She goes on, I used to have this concept of what God is like and how life is supposed to be because of that. But in the jungle, I learned I don't know as much about God as I thought I did. I don't have him in a theological box anymore. What I do know is that God is God, and I am not. And the world's in a mess because of sin, not God. And some awful things may happen to me, but God does what is right, and He makes good out of bad situations. Well, I'm preaching this sermon this morning because Gracia isn't the only one who has faced trauma and come out on the other side with a deeper understanding of God. I think it's fair to say that most of the people in this room have faced one kind of trauma or another and come out with a different understanding of God. And that's where we find David in chapter 29 of 1 Samuel. He's on one of those battlefields of life. And like Gratia, the way he deals with it has three powerful lessons for us. So let's describe the battlefield a little bit. We just read this uh, from 1 Samuel. We read all the way through chapter 29. If we were to back up, and I'll just narrate this for you, but if we were to back up into chapter 27, David had been anointed as king of Israel to replace the rebellious Saul. And he had been running from Saul ever since, a total of about 10 years. 
And finally, tired of running, he comes up with this plan. I'll go hang out with the Philistines. I'll pretend to be an enemy of Israel and Saul will leave me alone. And so that's what he did. And the Philistine king, Achish, gives David about a town. He gives David a town that's about 20 miles south of Gath, which is the king's headquarters. And it's called Ziklag. And that becomes David's headquarters. And David pretends to fight for Achish. He pretends to go and raid the Israelites. But really, he's going south and he's raiding other tribes and bringing back the booty to Achish. And he's claiming that he's raiding Saul's territories, but he's raiding other people. Then over in Samuel, 1 Samuel 28, Achish goes to war against Saul. And he tells David, you'll have to go with me. And so David and his 600 men go with Achish to Aphek. Now, Aphek is a three days march for David and his 600 guys up from Ziklag. And they're going to meet in Aphek, and that's where all of the Philistine warriors are going to come together, and then they're going to go attack Saul. So now they've gone to Aphek. They've left their wives and their children behind in Ziklag. Now David is in a bind, and he knows that he's in a bind. Their families are vulnerable that they've left behind. He's marching under the banner of his country's enemy, of Israel's enemy. The Philistine generals don't trust him. King Saul of Israel will kill him on sight. So he's really between a rock and a hard place. But God opens up this way of escape. And the way of escape is like what we read. The Philistine generals are complaining to their king. Hey, this guy can turn on us at any moment. He can't stay here. You've got to send him back to Ziklag. And so King Achish agrees and if we're David at this point, it, it, it feels like we would be going, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. I mean, God is watching out for me. I'll just head back home to Ziklag and hunker down. So David and his 600 men turn around. They make the three-day march back to Ziklag. But instead of a warm dinner cooking on the stove, that they, they don't smell that. They smell the stench of burning houses. Because they get back to Ziklag, and Ziklag has been destroyed. Let's look at chapter 30, just the first few verses. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept, until they had no more strength to weep. And David's two wives had also been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal and Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter, bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So he gets home to Ziklag and he says, disaster, utter disaster. Now think about this, guys. You've worked as hard as you know how to work. You've been faced with incredibly difficult problems to solve 
in your career, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family. You've worked as hard as you know how to work. You've done everything that you know to do to try to make it all come out right. You think you've dodged a bullet, and then you get home, and it's a disaster. Has anybody ever been there? So not only is it a disaster, now David is feeling like a total failure. He has failed to do the one thing that's most important for any man with a family, and that's protect his family. He's failed. He's also failed as a leader. He's failed to position his men for success and help them protect their families, and they're ready to kill him. So what's he doing? He's doing the same thing that we do. He is weeping aloud because he had no, until he had no more strength to weep. He's shocked. He's caught off guard. He's angry. He's confused. He's exhausted, and he's numb. And again, I ask, have you ever been there? That's what I'm calling the battlefield of life. Life is a battlefield when whatever is happening leaves you shocked, angry, exhausted, and confused. But there's more to it than that. David did not have time to just sit there and wallow in his grief. You know what that's like. He had to lead. Life is a battlefield when you're shocked, angry, exhausted, confused, but the demands just keep coming. The bills have got to be paid, the car has got to be fixed, the grass has got to be mowed, the job has to be done, and you're the only one to do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. You don't have time to grieve. You have to lead. You have to absorb the bitterness and the grief of others, and you have to keep on trucking. You have to help others make sense of the chaos that they are experiencing. And you have to make sense of it internally while you're leading everybody else. That's the battlefield. You have to help others find their vision and purpose again and make progress on their own battlefields. All in the middle of this exhaustion and confusion and anger and chaos. And the hardest part is when God seems far away and your emotions are on total lockdown and you can't feel anything anymore. Um, my friend Paul Westland, my late friend Paul Westland, was a missionary aviator in Papua, Indonesia for 11 years. Um, pardon me, 18 years. He had 11,000 hours of flight time. And in 1993, this is what he wrote in his journal. In September of 1993, Levon is pregnant and not doing well. My daughter has malaria. I was up late last night tending to them when at about 11 p.m. I noticed that Blackie, our sweet-tempered German shepherd, was not well. Her breathing was labored. Her eyes didn't look right. I tended to her until 1 a.m. and then she died. And I took her out in the backyard with a shovel to bury her because I didn't want her to end up in the meat market down the street. And he said, and I'm not making that up. I saw a small dish of sardines. Blackie smelled like sardines. 
Someone had poisoned my dog. God, I said, this wouldn't be happening in the States. Paul was a wonderful man. He was always fun to be around. He had lots and lots of stories. Some of his pilot friends told me, yeah, some of them are actually true. (laughs) But he just had a ball with those Indonesian people. And he said, they have a name for me, Abichuam Esam. It means he will kill you with laughter. (laughs) And I said, God, as I drove the shovel down into the ground, Help me live up to my name. Well, here's the interesting thing that was not in that, and I don't, I don't remember now. I think it's in the book. They lost that baby. And he buried the baby in a shoebox in the backyard in Papua, Indonesia. That's a spiritual battlefield. And when the fog of the spiritual war descends on you and you can't feel God anymore, you still have to lead. You still have to be abituam esam. And so that's what David did. It says in verse 6 of chapter 30, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Really short sentence there. He got up and he began to seek God. So here's the first lesson of the battlefield. There's a lot of background so we could get to the lessons. How am I doing? We're okay. The first lesson of the battlefield, the spiritual battlefield, is you have to find God no matter what. You have to find God no matter what. You must be determined that you're going to find Him. You must pursue Him in an attitude of worship and reverence until you find Him. One of the greatest secrets of a a robust and deep spiritual life is when you're in one of these battlefields, when everything looks just completely insane, when everything is upside down, when humanly what you feel like doing is taking a baseball bat to the situation, the, the, the great secret that I think most of us miss is you've got to get on your knees and you've just got to intentionally worship. I worship you, Father, in the name of Jesus. You've got to open the book of Psalms and start reading those Psalms. If you can't sing them, if you don't have the heart to sing, Just read them out loud to God and keep worshiping and keep worshiping and keep worshiping intentionally against what you feel. Because what you feel is, I don't want to have anything to do with God. But you keep worshiping and you keep worshiping and you keep worshiping until you reconnect. Because you will. Stephen Curtis Chapman said, I have learned that we can control where we allow things to fall, that the things that we can't understand to fall in life. I've learned that we can control where we allow them to fall. 
They either fall between us and God and push us away from God, or they fall outside of us and push us toward God. That's the choice that David made. When life becomes a battlefield, lesson one, let the battle push you toward God, not away from Him. And that brings us to the second important lesson. Number two, battlefields force us to redefine God. Battlefields force us to redefine God. Someone asked my, my good friend and now my boss, David Reeves, uh, in, a, in a group session last week, how did you arrive at this, you know, this place where you are in life spiritually? How did you make these decisions? And David explained that um, most of American Christianity is a thousand miles wide and about one inch deep. And he said, and, and I think most of them have Romans chapter 8 misinterpreted. That's the one where it says, um, God will cause all things to work to the good of those who love him. And he said, we treat that kind of like a magic potion, you know, like a magic spell. And that like nothing is supposed bad to ha- is bad supposed to happen to us. And he said, I just think that's wrong. David went through a jihad in Indonesia uh, at the turn of the century, and he saw his, many of his Indonesian's friends murdered. Um, and it had a, a profound effect on him. But battlefields force us to redefine God. He, David got to a place where he had to, he had to recalculate and reconfigure his, his whole theological setup in his life. So one of the ways we find God on the battlefields is by learning that the God that we've been worshiping isn't necessarily the God of the Bible. I mean, we have to accept the fact that our knowledge of his ways and our understanding of his purposes is about as deep as our understanding of Mars. Philip Yancey made this comment in his book about prayer. If the Milky Way galaxy were the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system, now you think the Milky Way galaxy is huge, our solar system, if if, if we shrunk it down to the size of America, the continent of America, our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup. The two Voyager spacecraft were launched in 1977. They've traveled over 12 billion miles. They've passed the outer edge of the solar system, which means they've gone interstellar at 100,000 miles an hour. And for 46 years, they have been on their way, speeding away from Earth. When engineers beam a command to the spacecraft at the speed of light, it takes 13 hours or more than that to arrive at the spacecraft. And so this vast neighborhood of our sun, says Yancey, in truth, the size of a coffee cup, fits along with several hundred billion other stars and their minions in the Milky Way, which is one of perhaps a hundred billion such galaxies in the universe. And to send a light speed message to the edge of that universe would take 15 billion years. And God, the God of the Bible, spoke that universe into existence. And we think we're going to put him in a box? We think we're going to understand everything that he does in and about our lives? 
So we have to redefine this God sometimes that we think we know. So let's make a couple of observations about, about redefining God. First, when you get to the place where you cannot feel your religion anymore and God is not behaving the way that you think he should, that's a good thing. You are beginning to find the real God. You know, that was the thing that messed people up when Jesus went around doing his ministry. He didn't act anything like the God that they thought they knew. And it really upset them. Have you guys been watching The Chosen? You've got to watch The Chosen. They're doing such a good job with this. Find it. Just, just find it. They're doing a really good job. So you're about to know God on a whole new level. And like we said, American Christianity is a thousand miles wide and about one inch deep. One inch deep. Most of us are children in our walk with God until he actually makes good on his promise and takes us to the cross. Remember what Jesus said? Anybody who's going to come after me has to take up his cross and die to himself. Fun and games. Oh, that's really great. That's predictable. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul relates a similar kind of situation in his life. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul was right there. He said, it's a disaster. I think I'm going to die. Why did God do this? Why did God allow this? So that I would learn not to rely on myself, but on God who raises the dead, he says. So when that happens and we stop relying on our shallow Sunday school flannel graph you know, idea of God. I don't have anything against flannel graphs. Children need to start there, but children need to grow up. That's when we begin to know the God who raises the dead. And this is the hard part. You have to die to yourself. You have to be like David and say, I don't have time to sit here and cry in my soup. These guys are going to kill me if I don't get up and lead. I don't have time to sit here and feel sorry for myself. I've got work to do. So if you want to know resurrection power, you have to go through the cross to get it. God doesn't give resurrection power to people who aren't dead yet. And the kind of death that we're talking about is obviously not a physical death. It is a spiritual and, and emotional metamorphosis. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? No, not that part of 13. <laughs> not the love part. There's another part. Verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Here's my paraphrase. I responded to crises with the emotional maturity of a child. But Paul says, when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 
most of us would prefer not to go there. We would prefer to be taken care of all the time and have our needs met rather than meeting the needs of others. So that's the first observation. We have to redefine God, uh, and in order to do that, we've got to put away our childish view of God. Second observation on redefining God is we have to remember this. God hasn't changed, but we need to. God hasn't changed, but we need to. Chris, uh, Chris Pleckenpaul was a captain. He was a ground commander in the Iraq War, and somebody asked Captain Pleckenpaul a question that we ask. How can God exist in such a place as with war and terror? How can this be? Paul said, I think God exists in places of terror because it just reveals how much everything is broken. He created this perfect order of things, and then when sin enters the scene, we get to see the ramifications. God exists, He's present in those moments to show us how desperately we need Him and how He can redeem us and change us and give us a new life. God hasn't changed. His attributes remain the same. He is good, He is righteous, He is just, He is loving. He is kind and he is gentle. But disaster, especially human disaster, overwhelms us emotionally so much that we lose track of that. And I'm not just talking about human disaster like tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that. I'm talking about human disasters like murder and betrayal. And it reveals how everything on earth is broken, including us. So the battlefields of life force us to understand God as grown-ups. We go from seeing Him as the great sugar daddy in the sky to the king of the cosmos who gave up His own Son on behalf of His enemies. That's just nuts. But that's how God is. Jesus goes from Pastor Milk Toast with long hair and tender eyes and a flowing satin robe to this terrifying guy with a whip driving merchants out of the temple to this guy in a blazing light on top of the mountain talking to two guys who've been dead for a thousand years while his disciples watched. How many of you thought about Jesus like that lately? So the God that we have gotten used to is tame and predictable. The real God is not. Dorothy Sayers captured this observation well when she said this about Jesus. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently pared the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates, those are preachers, by the way, and pious old ladies. Those who knew him, however, objected to him as a dangerous firebrand. He's just not who you think he is. So we find God on the battlefields of life when we leave this candy-coated Christianese, this bumper-sticker Christianese behind us. And we remember what Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but do not be afraid, I will have overcome the world. 
And we find God on the battlefields of life when we go from worshiping Mr. Rogers with a beard to falling down at the feet of the Lion of Judah. But once we're there, we have to stay there. We have to remain committed to this whole thing of worship and prayer. And that's what David was doing. When David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, he's worshiping. That's how David handled stuff. We have a whole book of Psalms that deal with that. We'll get there. So this is lesson three. We're almost done. Finding God on the battlefields of life means a commitment to daily prayer of the most powerful kind. So how do you think David did all that stuff that he did? How do you think he recovered his wits, got up from weeping, stared down the rebels who wanted to stone him, and then got everybody on course to go rescue their families? He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What does that look like? Well, it's a habit that you have to develop. It's like a football game. We're in the playoffs right now. These guys have been working all season to get ready for the playoffs. So it's like training for the big game by playing all the little games. Jeremiah 12 verse 5 says, If you've raced with men on foot and they've worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets of the Jordan? you got to be ready. You have to have a lifestyle of this. So in other words, if you gripe and complain about the little things, when you come, what's going to happen when you come up against the big things? I met a man uh, 25 or 30 years ago named Bill Glass. And Bill Glass was a 1960s uh, NFL football star. He had a successful career in the NFL. He retired from that, and he became a prison evangelist. He did all kinds. He would do evangelistic meetings. We had him in Marietta, Georgia for a crusade, but he would go and do evangelistic uh, teaching everywhere. And one of those places was through a ministry he called Champions for Life, he was talking to the Texas Rangers baseball team in their dugout, in their chapel service one day. And he said, look, guys, if you gripe and cuss at the umpire when you strike out, what are you going to do when your little girl dies? What are you going to do when you get a career-ending injury? So what's he talking about? He's talking about this lifestyle of seeking hard after God and re-strengthening himself in God all the time, not just when the disaster hits. You've got to know how to do it before the emergency happens. So it starts, finding God on the big battlefields starts with walking with him in the little battlefields. Okay, what do I say to God when I don't know what to say to God? Look in your Bibles to at um, Psalm 57. Psalm 57. It's real short, just 11 verses. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. So he's in the middle of something and he's telling God right out on the front end, I'm going to stay there until the storms pass by. I'm going to keep worshiping you. 
I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame he who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and faithfulness. My soul, he says, is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are like spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Remember what David's guys were wanting to do to him? The Philistine lords didn't trust him. Saul wanted to kill him, and now his own men want to stone him. I'm in the midst of lions. He's not afraid to tell God this. Have you ever been in that place? One of the ways you know that you've sort of made a breakthrough with God is when you get to the place where you can say outrageous things to Him because you know He's there and He's listening. People who don't believe He's there and don't believe He loves us, they're afraid to say stuff like that to God. So He says, these guys are lions, their tongues are sharp, swords. Then He makes this shift. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let Your glory be over all the earth. What's He doing? He's not just saying, oh, please make me feel better. Oh, God, I'm having a bad time. No, he's saying what the real situation is. These guys are bad. But you're all, and I'm afraid of them, but you're almighty God. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they've fallen into it themselves. It's really bad. Then verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. He's feeling really, really bad. What's he doing? Worshiping. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. When is he worshiping? First thing in the morning. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. It's really, really, really bad, but I'm going to stand up in church and say how good you are. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the cloud be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So what do you say when it's, like, when it's a battlefield? You worship. If you don't know how, open the book of Psalms and read them out loud to God until they become your own. People who've been through this kind of experience learn, like David, to be completely emotionally transparent with God. But not just reveal their own emotions Worship Him intently. So we've got two choices. We're all going to face battlefields. We've got two choices. Run away in fear and bitterness and shut God out for all the painkillers of the world. There's lots of them out there. Or take the path of power and pain and learn what it means to rise from the dead. Sometimes we believe that in prayer we are bringing God down into our situations. We are not. We aren't bringing Him down. He's already here. 
we are stepping into his stream of consciousness. And what I mean by that is when you're praying the Psalms, you're praying God's thoughts after him. When you're praying the Lord's Prayer, you're praying his thoughts after him. Use those as a model. Don't just stop there. Use them as a model. But you're training your brain to think like God thinks. You're training your soul. God was never missing from David's battlefields. And God is never absent from ours. We just have to learn how to find him. So number one, make up your mind to pursue him. Get up from your bed of weeping, stop feeling sorry for yourself, and go after him. Number two, be ready to let him redefine himself for you. I can't, I don't think I can emphasize that enough. Remember what he says to Peter? No, no, you're not going to the cross. I'll die before that happens, Peter. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Then, after you've recovered, strengthen your brothers. Be ready to let him redefine himself. He's more terrifying and he's more tender than you can possibly imagine. Number three, make the choice to take the painful path because that's the path God's on. So what do we, who do we keep our eyes on here, right? There is a soldier who felt estranged from God at the worst possible moment. His enemies had him pinned down. He could not move. He could not escape. Death was imminent, and he knew it. So he cried out to God in his moment of greatest desperation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God didn't rescue him. But he never stopped believing. And with his last breath, he said, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And in that moment, he went from being just a prophet and a miracle worker, nailed to a cross by people who betrayed him and hated him, to being the most powerful man in history. Would you pray with me, please? You know, one of, one of the things that we need to do as people worshiping God together when we have a text like this and a message like this is we need time to do business with God. So I'm going to be quiet and urge you to do business with God. What battlefield are you on? Ask him how he needs to be redefined in your life. Ask him show, to show you where to worship and how. Let's pray.
So, Father, some of us are, have, are doing just fine right now. Some of us have just come off of a battlefield and started to recover. Some of us are on the battlefield, just like David. And we need to pull ourselves together. Some of us are having the shock of our lives that you're not, you're not the God we thought you were. I pray for each one here that um, whether they're on a battlefield, leaving one or heading into one, that you would in unmistakable ways help them to know that you are with them, that you never forsake them, and that you have called them your own and will strengthen them. Help them to worship. Help them to rearrange their theology if they need to with sound theology and sound biblical understanding. Help them to think their thoughts after you and then be able to offer their lives over to you to be reshaped by your word. Thank you for David for telling us his story. Help us, Father, to learn all that there is to know from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.